I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello and welcome back to the Prospect Podcast, where we speak to the brightest minds and talk about the ideas that matter in politics, arts and society. I'm Anna Rusbridger, editor of Prospect Magazine, and today I'm joined by John Gertz, a Berlin-based journalist who is the editor of investigations at the German broadcaster NDR. For the latest issue of Prospect, Gertz, along with Bastian Berbner, who writes the German newspaper Die Zeit, wrote a really fascinating feature that we titled What Happened in Guantanamo, which tells the story of a former prisoner, Mohamedou Old Slahi, and a man who tortured him who uh, goes under the pseudonymous name of Mr. X, who Gertz and Berbner tracked down 17 years later. So, so John, I suppose the first question is, tell me the origins of this story and how uh, you got into it and what inspired you to go looking for Mr. X. There were really only two German prisoners in Guantanamo. So way back in 2007, when I was working for Der Spiegel, we decided to do a story about Mohamedou Slahi as he had been someone who had lived in Germany for over 10 years. And there was the question of how did he get there? And in the process of doing this kind of longer story, I got to know his family and got to know his lawyers. And it was in that process that we began to hear about each other. We began to, you know, through his lawyer, you're not allowed to call people at Guantanamo, obviously. And when our story came out, he told his attorney or his attorney told me it was the first time he had read something that doubted his guilt and he kind of was in this kind of weird skiff room at Guantanamo and broke down and cried and it was kind of since then we had this bond and so when he got out of Guantanamo I remember I think it was in December or whatever I got a whatsapp message completely unannounced hey John it's Mohamedou so that was kind of the beginning. That, that was the beginning of the journey. And, and what, what happened next? Well, you, you met him? Yeah, so he asked me to come down and visit him. And, and I thought, well, you know, maybe we'll do a story about someone who's now out of Guantanamo. I was no longer at Der Spiegel. And actually, when I got there, I wasn't prepared for the fact that Mohamedou really had a plan. He really had a concept of why he wanted me to come down. And where was he living at, the, at this point? After Guantanamo, he was sent back to the home where he originally is from, not to Germany, but to Mauritania. And he was not allowed to travel. He, the Americans had, had made part of the agreement for his release that he not be given a passport. 
And Mohamedou had seen some stories I had done where I had tracked down like kind of other CIA people or other people in the American military in the past. And he had this idea and he was like, well, John, can you do me a favor? Can you track these people down for me? I'd like to talk to them. You know, he was very well aware that he can't track people down because if he did, it would be seen as stalking or kind of, you know, um, you know, intimidation, former Guantanamo, pretty, mm-hmm. exactly intimidating or whatever. So he asked me to do it. And I, I didn't think it would come to much. You know, I thought what we would do is maybe we'd find them. We'd call them on the phone or maybe knock on their doors and they'd say no. And. I was quite surprised to find out that many of them actually did want to talk to him. Just to go back, tell us a bit about Slahi Mohamedou and why was he of so, such interest to the American government in, in the first place? Well, Mohamedou Slahi became of interest to the U.S. government because some people call him like the Forrest Gump of terrorism. He was like kind of connected to all these different people who were important in Al-Qaeda. He has a brother-in-law who was in Al-Qaeda. He knew these people in Germany who were involved in some way with the 9-11 attacks. And he, he just had all of these different connections. And it really seemed like where there's smoke, there's fire. There must be some reason why he knows all of these people, right? He must be this kind of instrumental either recruiter or mastermind behind everything because there was no other explanation the American government thought at the time for him to know these different people. Was there evidence beyond that that emerged during the time that he was in Guantanamo? No, in all of the years that he was there, he was never indicted. He was never charged with any crime. And to this day, there is no charge. There is only association. There's only the fact that he knew certain people. And the way that I kind of see Mohamedou's connection to Al-Qaeda in that era is that like a lot of people in the student movement who kind of knew each other, who went on to do certain things later on, it had more to do with just being in a social world or in a social circle, and it was less about him doing things. That's my take after dealing with this case now for, I don't know, since 2007. And tell me about how he was treated in Guantanamo. We'll talk about torture in a minute, but but, but in, in general, what were the conditions like and how did his, his captors behave towards him? Well, he actually went to, he went to, he was asked to show up at the police station and he drove there in Mauritania on his own. He wasn't kidnapped. He actually reported to the police. He had been questioned for months before regularly. The Mauritanian police basically, and even the FBI, said they didn't think that he was guilty of anything. And then (laughs) there's an amazing scene of him getting in the CIA rendition plane voluntarily and him actually translating for the CIA uh, and Mauritanian people about getting into the plane. And then he's taken um, to Jordan, where he spent a number of months in Jordan, where he was questioned. And apparently there was kind of a CIA quarterbacking, as they call it, where they would kind of, he'd be questioned through the window by the CIA people. And it was the Jordanians who did the actual questioning. They also found nothing and basically, the CIA dumped him into the hands of the Pentagon, right? You know, because rather than release somebody at that time in 2002, 
you didn't want to release someone, you wanted to make sure they were at least in captivity. So he gets dumped into the hands of the military and sent to Bagram. And Bagram in Afghanistan at that time was the kind of entrance gate to the, you know, Guantanamo American prison um, system, um, surprisingly, even though it's far away from Guantanamo. So he gets sent to, to Bagram, where he's then flown to Guantanamo, where he then ends up spending 14 years of his life. In the beginning, there was an initial phase where the FBI was responsible for questioning him. They were very interested in doing a cooperative kind of questioning. Even the, the FBI agent even learned passages from the Quran and memorized them. It was a real kind of consensual-based kind of interrogation. And when that didn't work in the eyes of the Americans, they decided <coughs> to change the temperature and to put him in what they called a special, a special projects team. So how long after he got to Guantanamo did the mood change? He got there in the fall of 2002, and it was basically in May of 2003 that the interrogation plan that was eventually approved by Rumsfeld, right? It goes way up the chain of command. We actually have a signature from Rumsfeld on what happened to Mohamedou. I just want to say that's one of the unique things about his case is that he and one other person are the really only two cases where the U.S. government admits that the military tortured someone, right? There's a kind of, you know, so the, he's not like, it's not a contested thing in his case. So there's no, you know, we did, never had to prove that he was tortured, if you know, you know, which was always journalistically helpful. Do you know what I mean? They, they, you were yeah. trying to prove other things. So in May of 2003, the special projects team takes over and the FBI agent, in kind of as he says goodbye to him, you're going to experience a very different world right now. And that's when the torture began and kind of continues until the fall. And what form did the torture take? Well, first of all, he was isolated. I mean, the key thing that the, that the Americans, you know, that the special interrogation team wanted was to isolate him, to take away his ability to communicate with other people. And then there was a whole string of, of things that they did that eventually kind of escalated. So there was cold treatment, there was hot treatment, food was taken away from him, eventually he was beaten, uh, eventually, this is one of the things that I think really bothered him, was that there was kind of a ruse done on him where he was told that his mother would be raped if he didn't cooperate, that his mother would be taken into custody and released to a prison where men would have access to her. And that was a real point where he, when they started to threaten his family members, it was the point where he really changed. And you have to know that this was the, the threat to his mother really came after weeks and weeks of of lack of sleep, you know, temperature, food deprivation. He was kind of like not under his full capacity. And then when this threat came, that compiled with feeling very guilty about having put his family into a difficult situation, that's kind of what broke him. The torture didn't stop then. Um, he continued to be beaten and other things were done to him. He was kind of kidnapped within Guantanamo and kind of given this, you know, it was kind of a fake kidnapping and brought to a new location and also like a more harsher for regime 
of isolation happened there. There were different things like that. And, and when you say it broke him, what, what do you mean by that? Well, he had been very spirited up until that point saying, you know, what are you charging me with? You know, like, what, you know, I know I have rights. You know, what, what are you saying I've done? And I've, you know, he, he was very steadfast in saying he hadn't done anything. It was that after the, the threat to his mother and to other members of his family um, that he was willing basically to say anything that they wanted him to say. And he ended up kind of creating a story that he had planned to blow up a tower in Cleveland, Ohio. And, you know, he had done all of these things and was providing kind of some detail, some, you know, whatever he could to kind of make make his interrogators happy. There was another plan apparently to blow up in Toronto, the uh, another tower. Um, he basically admitted to anything that they that they wanted him to admit to. But it was a tricky thing because he needed to be <laughs> he needed to admit things that could kind of be checked out. And then there is this problem that happens while he's admitting, you know, he has, he has months where he's explaining how important he is in Al Qaeda and everything where then the American military is checking out the information and it's not adding up, right? Like they're, you know, well, we don't really have any details about this. And that was the real key then. What happens is that the head of the special interrogations team, who is actually a Chicago cop, a, a, a reservist, a Chicago cop who had been charged repeatedly in Chicago of mistreating black prisoners and forcing confessions, basically decides we need to legalize all of his confessions by getting him to go on to a lie detector. And the whole idea was to kind of, because the evidence wasn't working out with what he had admitted, he, he gets put into a lie detector. And it was kind of Mohamedou's moment to try to <laughs> break out. And so when the lie detector test comes, he tells the truth. <laughs> and all of the evidence that he had been giving against himself, you know, he said wasn't true, and he wins the lie detector test, which creates this huge problem for the military, right? Because they wanted to kind of legalize and kind of establish this information as true through the lie detector, and then they do a second lie detector test. I mean, lie detector tests in general are, you know, bullshit, right? But um, but within the U.S. military, it's, it's the way that they did this, and Mohamedou again past the second lie detector test. So it kind of, he stalemated them. Uh, and they didn't really know what to do with him after that. And that's kind of when the mistreatment stopped because he had admitted all these things, the lie detector test, he passed by telling the truth, and they didn't know how to continue. So to go back to the time when you, you met him and he says, would you track down the people who did these things to me? Did he have their names? How did, how did you begin to find them? Well, I mean, that's just it, is that they wore masks partially. Uh, they all used pseudonyms or almost all of them used pseudonyms. So we really had no way of finding them. I mean, we had descriptions. We had the time that they served at Guantanamo. We knew the name of the unit. And basically, if you just keep looking and keep knocking on doors and calling people, and so we ended up then finding people who worked on the Saudi desk 
at the same time while he was there. And then we heard about the unit that worked on him. There were, you know, we were able to kind of research kind of parallel desks and units that were at Guantanamo at that time. Then we heard vaguely about the people there. And then, of course, there's this, an, an American government report about his mistreatment that refers to people. And then you kind of, you know, piece all these things together and basically just, you know, waste a lot of time doing useless things. You know, you call, you know, call people who you think are going to help you and they don't end up helping you. And eventually it was actually with Mr. X we ended up finding Mr. X by pure chance. Someone we knew was at a barbecue in Washington, D.C. He had done some reading about the Slahi case before and was, you know, chatting at, at this barbecue and mentioned the Slahi case. And the guy he was speaking to was Mr. X. And he said, um, I know a lot about that case. And then began a two-year attempt to get Mr. X to talk to us. But we were able to identify him, <clears throat> which was a big deal back then for us. It was a major breakthrough, finding Mr. X. How, how did he respond when you first approached him? We spent two years approaching him, and he never responded. He didn't respond to voicemails. He didn't answer his phone. He didn't respond to emails. He didn't respond to anything on LinkedIn or Facebook. Zero response. And actually, <laughs> maybe... Um, Maybe it shows you that I'm, I'm brain dead. I don't know. But I actually saw that as positive. I actually read that. He didn't say no, right? I mean, I saw somebody who didn't engage with us, but he didn't close the door, right? So I actually remained optimistic. And then eventually we were able to get someone who knew Mr. X to meet with him and uh, talk it through and then they together eventually came two years after first finding him to meet with us where we eventually did the interview. Describe what sort of person you met. What, what kind of guy was he and um, what was he doing with his life? Well, if you looked at Mr. Rex on Facebook, right, there's pictures of him with samurai swords and Kalashnikovs and kind of, you know, war paint and, you know, you know some pictures of him, you know, dressed in a cop uniform. And you just think he's this hardcore zombie, this kind of militaristic, you know, person who enjoyed torturing and was this, you know, kind of anything that a kind of German audience would imagine a sick American torturer to be is what he looked like on Facebook, right? <laughs> and then we met this guy, and he is a very thoughtful, reflective person. He's someone, <clears throat> he's someone who's very apologetic about what he's done. He's someone who spent the last 17 years in therapy. He wrote a, a, a master's thesis about what he did. And, and he's spent the last 17 years regretting and trying to come to terms with what he did and realizing that he was a torturer. So he was really quite a different person than we thought he would be. We were actually scared to even physically approach him because he's this huge, amazingly tall, kind of wide, muscular person. And I, I just imagined it would be scary to even be with him. And he's extremely empathetic and he actually says it's his ability to be empathetic that made him such a good torturer 
He was able to really get into the minds of the people he worked on. He called me up once in Berlin. It was, you know, like three in the morning, and I happened to be awake. I have no idea why I was awake. Uh, and he was he was on the phone, and and he began to cry because he looked at this video of himself as a as a young boy that his brother had sent to him, and it's kind of this little home movie, and they're playing superheroes, and he kind of says to you know he and his brother like we're here to protect the little kids and the girls. It's not fair to beat up on people anymore, right? And he like, and he was just crying and he was like, you know, John, I started out and I wanted to be a good guy. That's what I wanted to be in life. And like kind of what happened to me, you know, was not what I thought I'd be. And so I found someone who was astonishingly open to, you know, looking into what ha what had made him do the stuff that he did. <clears throat> I will say, it, when it came to specifics, he was always reluctant to talk about specific things. I do think he was thinking about legal proceedings and, and court issues and, you know, what might happen to him. So he was he was very open to being reflective. On the other hand, he was also watching exactly what he said. It was kind of a mix. But did you, did you have a good sense of what he, in fact, did do to Mahamadou? Yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah. It, it's, it's also, it's listed in the reports by right. the U.S. government. I mean, it's pretty, it's pretty clear. He also confirmed that Mohamedou's account, Mohamedou wrote a, 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 a successful uh, book called Guantanamo Diary, uh, where he details what Mr. X did. And with one exception, he confirms the account of what Mohamedou said he did. And waterboarding? Mohamedou was not waterboarded, no. no. Um, um, he was played, <laughs> you know, all of this horrible heavy metal music, all of that kind of stuff we know from Guantanamo happened to him, but, Guant but waterboarding did not happen. No. No. When you found Mr. X, he was spinning pottery, I think, and he talked about torture as a creative process. Right. <clears throat> I mean, he, he's thought a lot about torture and about how it is an inherently creative process. I mean, he talks about, you know, I mean, one of the examples he gives is when you, not that he did this, but if you're, you know, in a medieval sense, I'm quoting him now, if you're pulling out fingernails, the, when you get to the fourth or fifth fingernail, it doesn't have the same drama that the first fingernail does. And when you get, when you keep going, you need to kind of constantly be thinking of how to surprise the person you're torturing. So <clears throat> the whole kind of internal notion, what are you thinking when you're torturing someone, was something that he had spent a lot of time actually researching, thinking about. And again, he calls it an inherently creative process. Yeah. And you say he spent 17 years coming to terms with this. I mean, what, how would you characterize the effect of having tortured um, Mahmoudou on him? Well, he's always asked us not to get into the details, but he um, w was plagued with thoughts and some actions of self-mutilation. Um, there were suicide attempts. There was alcoholism, drug use, um, a series of divorces, um, kind of an alienation from his... I mean, he... He really um, 
and I believe it, I could tell from being with him, had gone through a really horrible period. I mean, again, let's remember, he's the one who tortured. He's not the victim here, do you know what I mean? But it is really interesting what happened to him as well. He eventually, for many, many years, he taught interrogation techniques in Afghanistan and Iraq. And eventually he came to the point where he explained to the young interrogators who were learning from him, you know, you don't want to torture people because otherwise you're going to become me. Believe me, you may think it's the easy road to going somewhere, but look what's happened to me. Don't do it. I mean, that's what he said that he did in, in, in his many seminars on interrogation. I mean, as you tell the story, John, it, it's almost as though Mohamedou has dealt with the events that happened in Guantanamo rather better than Mr. X himself. I mean, he must have had his, he must have had his own dark night of the soul. Uh, of course, of course. But Mohamedou had a, you know, a feature film, you know, starring Benedict Cumberbatch and <laughs> Jodie Foster, you know, kind of based on his diaries. The film did did fairly well. He's, he's written another book. He's ready. He's writing another one right now. Um, he's, you know, a well seen guest in the kind of the NGO human rights circuit. Um, and he had a child a few a couple of years ago. I mean, 14 years of his life were taken away from him. He wasn't able to be at home when his mother died and he was tortured but it's quite amazing how he's taken this new chance at life and kind of run with it whereas the people from the interrogation team that we met so many of them were were wrecks um it's another guy that we you know one of the the guards who had to do things to Mohamedou. um i can't i can't remember how many pills he takes in a week antidepressants and you know I mean just just kind of wasted wrecks of people you know have they been well looked after by the American military well that's the fascinating thing is that not at all actually I mean you would think there'd be a certain kind of ethic that these people would be taken care of and it was really the opposite I mean it was actually astonishing for me to see kind of within their own legal military kind of system you would have expect some kind of loyalty these pe- loyalty to these people who had done these things but it was actually they were just kind of dumped out given no help treatment you know i think you know mr x needed to f- fight for years to have his ptsd status recognized you know it was really um again i'm not saying that these are the <laughs> the victims i'm not saying that but it it, it is interesting how they were not taken care of by yeah, the U.S. military. Yeah. In, in, the, in the presentation that we uh, did in Prospect, um, although you call him Mr. X, he was apparently happy to have his photograph taken. How, how does that work? Well, I mean, those were the conditions that he gave us. Um, I think he, you know, thinking of like kind of the, <clears throat> the somewhat secluded life that he leaves now, that he's not in a kind of media atmosphere where people would necessarily see things. He felt that a photo was okay. He just didn't want his name. He also didn't want other journalists calling him. He felt he was going to do this one time, and then that was it. Yeah, that was the decision he made. Who was Richard Zuli? Well, Richard Zuli was the head, you know, uh, Dick Zuli, as he calls himself, uh, was the head of the interrogation team. And he is a... Uh, retired Chicago police officer, homicide detective, 
who had had kind of a career in, in television crime. He's also known, if you Google his name, in, um, um, you'll see that there's a series of allegations in Chicago that he had mistreated black prisoners and forced confessions from them. There's even one case where the governor of Illinois released, pardoned and released someone from prison who Zuli had interrogated and forced the confession from. Um, so he was kind of the mastermind behind the mistreatment that, that Muhammadu endured. And when you met him, his attitude was rather different from Mr. X's, I gather. Right. <clears throat> Zuli felt that, that, I mean, he even had kind of a utopian notion of, of the healing power of, of, I mean, he didn't use the word torture, but of the violence that they did on Muhammadu, that it was actually a way to kind of bridge the United States and 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 Al Qaeda that you know they were kind of two men getting together and uh, deciding that the violence needed to stop um, and that the violence he kind of s- scoffed at what happened to Muhammadu saying that it was ridiculous to call that torture and I I mean um, the, 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 I mean, the one thing that's interesting is that coming, I think, from a Chicago Police Department point of view, probably what happened to Mohamedou was not the worst thing that Dick Zuli has seen in his career, right? Um, you know, that, that in the military, it was it was torture, but it was very specific and very outlined and very regulated. Um, my guess is that what Dick Zuli had seen in the, you know, kind of day-to-day life in the Chicago Police Force was very different. The piece you've written builds up to an encounter between Mahmoudou and Mr. X. Can you describe that encounter? Well, Mr. X wasn't sure he wanted to do it. It was six or seven hours later, I can't remember, in, in Mauritania where Mahmoudou was, and I knew that he wanted to go to sleep. Um, and it was online and eventually said, you know, it's either now or never. You know, either you're going to do it or you're not going to do it. You know, we just need to, you know... Um, you decide. He was reluctant to do it because he felt that Muhammadu has kind of marketed himself as this forgiver, uh, as someone who um, supports reconciliation, and he didn't want to be Muhammadu's victim, in, is the way that he put it. I mean, it's kind of interesting how he is, you know, made himself into the victim in this situation. Um, but he eventually decided to do it, and he apologized for what he had done. Uh, that was kind of one of the first things that he had done. And then in the conversation, flips and kind of goes back to, from, he had been this empathetic, self-critical person, and then all of a sudden in the telephone interview or in the telephone conversation between the two, he goes back into being Mr. X and kind of interrupts Muhammadu and, and kind of keeps on telling him, you know, what's true and what's not true. Um, and, you know, and then immediately says after to us after the interview, I wasn't going to let him dominate the conversation. And I remember saying to him, I said, you know, um, you know, <laughs> I mean, <laughs> he never dominated your conversations. You know, you know, like, wh- why, why did you feel you needed to control this one? You know, why not, you know? So it was kind of interesting how he... had these goals on the one hand, and then he kind of fell back into who he was. It was a weird, it was a sad moment for him. 
I mean, this this was not the Hollywood ending that you might have planned. I mean, Hollywood ending would have would 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 would, would be him struck by remorse and and then begging for forgiveness and Muhammadu giving him forgiveness and yeah, uh, and ending with a gigantic um, virtual hug. Um, that's not how it played out. It, I mean, I I sense I sense perhaps with both Mr. X and with Dick Zuli at a sense that they still don't believe him. No, no, they don't believe him. They believe that where there's smoke, there's fire, and the fact that he newly knew these people, <coughs> there has to be some reason why he knew these people in Al-Qaeda. Mr. X is absolutely convinced that he was guilty. But you have to know is that Mr. X didn't really know the file. I mean, he didn't really know the case. His, his job was to come in in the evenings and terrify Muhammadu for eight hours, so that first thing in the morning at you know at eight a.m. when the when the new interrogation shift came, there was this empathetic, loving, very friendly woman who kind of played Muhammadu's mom, right? And she was the one who was supposed to get the confession. Mr. X's job was not to know the details of the case. His job was just to terrify him for eight hours to kind of prepare for the morning shift. Right, because they were doing twenty-four hour interrogation shifts at the time. Um, so when Mister X says that he doesn't, you know, like based on what I know back then, I mean, when you get into the case with him, you know, and I've spent a lot of time looking at this case, you know, it, he doesn't really know anything. He just, he just kind of, um, so, so in many ways, he just kind of needs to hold on to that. But what you're exactly right, and I'm sorry if I'm going on too long, but. It wasn't the Hollywood ending that we expected. It, it was him reverting back to something that we found the entire camera crew that was there. We were really kind of shocked to see this guy who had been so nice and empathetic and thoughtful turn into a, to a very unpleasant, interrupting, dominant person in the phone call. And we actually got up and left. Um, we were going to, I mean, we, we didn't want to talk to him anymore. We actually went back to our hotel and said, we'll talk to you tomorrow. I mean, for all of us, it was, it was disturbing to see him behave that way in the phone call. Um, um, was he aware of how he had behaved? I mean, when you saw him the next day, was he a The next day, he, he, he was. Um, he was. Uh, he was apologetic again. He was the kind of nice Mr. X who was then showing us his paintings. And um, um, and I remember calling up Muhammadu then, you know, right afterwards and saying, you know, I'm really sorry that we put you through this. Do you know what I mean? Is this really, you know, I, you know, are we are we participating in new and monstrous acts? Right. Um, and Muhammadu responded and he said, John, I'm not a child. I know exactly what I'm doing here. And what happened, you know, in the phone call with Mr. S was exactly what I imagined would happen. Um, and so that was interesting, just to, that that he thought it was a very successful phone call. Yeah. And Mr. X was plagued with the fact that in front of us and in front of the camera, he had reverted back to something that he was ashamed of. It was it was troubling for us. And you quoted him ex during this call explicitly rejecting any attempt. He, he doesn't want forgiveness. Please. I mean, I, you, you've explained that I mean, he thought he, 
he probably was guilty. You've explained that he didn't want to be, uh, as he would put it, dominated. But um, I, I guess a, a sense of forgiveness would would bring some closure to most people. But 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 evidently not for him. Well, he felt that the forgiveness that it was there was you know there's a Guardian film about Muhammadu where he meets with a guard that he had later on and. And they, you know, the guard converts to Islam, and and they kind of walk hand in hand down the, you know, down the beach in Mauritania, and there's this kind of sense well, of you know, these, <laughs> these new brothers and stuff yeah. like that, and you know, and Mr. X said that was bullshit, and he wanted nothing to do with that, and he didn't want to be kind of some accessory in a marketing plan for Mohamedou's film. Uh, he didn't want. He said. I, I know what I did. I apologize for what I did. I don't need your your forgiveness. I don't need anything from you because it it's it, it's I did it, and it's only something between me and what I did. Um, and actually, Mohammedus seemed to understand that. Um, interestingly enough, and for Mohammedu, I mean, you say he knew what he was doing. Did you sense any sense of closure for him through this conversation? Well, yes, he was, I mean, um, he was plagued with nightmares. He was plagued with, I mean, I think, I mean, it's very hard for us to imagine what it means to be under the control of other people for such a long amount of time and meeting them on an entirely different situation as kind of equals in, in the moment now, being out of prison, not having any control and actually doing quite well. You know, a recent father, you know, successful book, successful film. He enjoyed, I mean, it was lovely for him to encounter these people under different circumstances. And he kind of felt that it took away their spell over him um, and, uh, and was very happy about the phone calls. He was especially happy about one woman who was one of the people who had interrogated him and was, you know, was convinced of his guilt. Um, and she wanted to keep on interrogating him on the phone in this one <laughs> phone call. Uh, and he got up and he left. And he, I've never seen him so happy as after he got up and just left the room in the middle of their conversation. He was giggling like a seventh grader that he could just get up and leave and that she had no ability to continue her interrogation. Um, he was just giggling and, and it was just, Amazing to see. This is a, 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 a gripping personal story, and you, I have to say you've uh, uh, written it so brilliantly. Is there a sort of wider thing here? Does this, what does this tell us about the, the U.S. and the war on terror? Well, I mean, the idea with the project was rather than look at the last 20 years in terms of the war and the chronology in Afghanistan and Iraq is that let's you know let's throw all that away and let's look at several weeks in 2003, like on a real micro level between this team and Mohammadu, what actually happened between them in that time, and away from all of the big politics and wars, and actually we had a a, a, a micro war that happened between them and him. And what actually happened, and and how do they see it today? And it was kind of interesting to see. I mean, if you take that as a micro expression of the of the last twenty years, the U.S. doesn't look good. Um, uh, 
it was just very interesting to see how these people are a mess um, and not, you know, you know, some of them, you know, regretting what they did, others kind of holding on to this kind of sense that they were right. And um, it's very interesting. The only person who on his own <laughs> reached out to Muhammadu was the lowest person in the hierarchy. The actually lowest person, a guard, actually found him on Facebook and wrote and said he had been thinking about what he had been doing for many years and he just wanted to apologize. And it's very interesting because you have, you know, all, it went way up to Rumsfeld and Wolfowitz and all of those people. The only person who apologized was the lowest person in the hierarchy. This story sounds as though it took you not just months but years. Um, I suppose my final question is, how easy is it to do this kind of reporting nowadays with the economics of journalism in the state we know it is? And why, why does it matter? Well, <clears throat> why does it matter? I mean, why do you think it matters? <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm, of course I think it matters because these are stories that don't yield to the the kind of predominant journalistic um, medium of today, which is um, social media or ex or living at the pace of social media. And and I I admire greatly journalists who have got the the patience and and as well as the resources uh, to really get under the skin of a story like this and tell us profound truths ab about what happened. But but I'd I'd love to hear from you why why yeah. what what drives you. <coughs> I mean, what I thought was really interesting was that it didn't fit into what we all imagined. And so many times in journalism, you kind of basically are told by your editors or whatever, you go out basically to find what we think happened. <laughs> Do you, know what I mean? you, you go to confirm you know, what you... And I think you know, when we get an opportunity to actually get inside a story, and it, that's where it really gets exciting, where you see actually that the people were not who you thought they were. I mean, I could have done... I had the Facebook information. I could have done a story about this monster, Mr. X. And actually, I was just stunned to find this empathetic, reflective human being. That's the last thing I expected. You know, Bernie Sanders supporter and anti-racist. And it's just not, you know, and it was interesting. The, I mean, uh, the, the, it doesn't come up in the, in the print story, but there, we found these, these men who in the Pentagon during the period that he was being tortured tried to stop the torture from happening. And it was amazing that they were Trump supporters. And then you had many of the members of the torture team were Clinton supporters. And we were researching this all during that whole kind of Trump-Clinton period. And it was just amazing to see it, it, it wasn't what I had thought. And that's always great and interesting. And, yeah. and that's why, yeah, I was really, really thankful that I had the opportunity to be able to do it. John, thank you so much for joining us today. I know you're in Portugal. You're, you're on a cycling holiday, so I hope you have great cycling weather. That, that's it from us. Thank you for tuning in to hear this discussion. If you enjoyed it, escape the echo chamber and grab a copy of the magazine which has this piece in it, which is currently on the, on the stands. Or you can uh, subscribe by going to subscription.prospectmagazine.co.uk. The lead story is a fascinating look at the splintering of the internet. Russia and China and other countries going their own way by Ethan Zuckerman, a wonderful piece. Fascinating writing by Priyam Vada Gopal, Sheila Hancock, 
Beth Rigby and the former England cricket captain Michael Brealey writing about Pinter and cricket. Goodbye, stay safe and listen out for the next episode of the Prospect Podcast next week.